Hey, Rizzo here at George Mason University. I'm here with Tom Cormby and Anthony Marr, uh, who have recently published a project report titled The Role and Value of Physical Education and Sport in Alternative Provision Schools. Uh, so we're here to talk about that and what they found, and uh, hopefully they can share a little bit about the problem. So Tom, Anthony, welcome. Thank you, Rita. Thank you for having us, Rita. It's a pleasure. So, as soon as I started reading this project, I stopped and then I emailed Tom because I don't understand the terminology that was in the very, very beginning of it. And then, Tom, I did actually read the full report and then I realized that you do actually explain it. I just had to go down like five pages to where the project actually started. But for people who are listening, can you explain these terms like alternative provision schools? Um, what are they? What is the term and what is this kind of project around? Okay, so I panicked a bit when you first emailed me because um, I was like, oh, maybe we've not done a good enough job. Um, and I did go away and do a substantial amount of uh, reading across the, the, the international scape, let's say. Um, and this is, in short, what we now know. So internationally, there is a term called alternative education settings, and they're used to describe schools or programs that serve young people who've not necessarily succeeded in uh, traditional, in the speech marks, uh, school environments. And it offers those pupils an opportunity to succeed in different settings that adopt different innovative approaches to learning. It's difficult to sort of put a, a stamp on a an all-encompassing definition because of the variety of terms that are used internationally. So I know, for instance, having gone away and, and been very uh, studious, that in Finland, um, it's actually referred to as flexible basic education. Mm. In Australia, similar programs that support young people who don't attend mainstream schools are called flexible learning options. Um, but in the UK, and England specifically, we use a term which is alternative provision. So that refers to education that's arranged by the state for children and young people of compulsory school age who, because of a variety of reasons, excluded from school, illness, behavioral issues, they wouldn't necessarily receive suitable education in mainstream schools. That's the all-encompassing overview of alternative provision. It gets more complicated when we think about what different types of alternative provision there are within England. So there are pupil referral units, there are alternative provision academies, alternative provision free schools, there are hospital schools and a range of others. They all do the same job, but they differ slightly in terms of the type of young people that they take, how they're funded and how they're run and how they're structured. Does that make sense, Anthony? Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I think I'd just like to commend Tom Evermay on how well prepared he is for this discussion. And he's much better prepared than I am. Sorry, Risto, over to you. So if I say like a boarding school, like I, I have a kid, I send them at 13 to a boarding school. Would that classify as an alternative provision school because they're spending the night there and they're staying there? No, not, not in England. Okay. So um, perhaps the... It's not the best way to think of it, but the easiest way to think of it is if a young person has 
serious behavioural issues and it's disrupting their education and the school that they're in can't manage it, they get excluded from that school, but they are still entitled to some education. And then they end up in another form of school environment where, for instance, other young people who've been excluded from school also attend. So it's not like a, a boarding school where your parents choose to send them there. It's for a variety of reasons. When I think stereotypically in England, when you think of alternative provision, the first thing that comes to mind is perhaps wrongly poor behavior of kids that have been sent somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all of the school districts around here have similar, but different names, you know, is, uh, not institutions, schools that are, that are on the same campus as another school and they're like going to that specific school and they have their own curriculum. They have smaller class sizes, you know, different background for the education of the teachers and so on and so forth. So, um, thanks for giving that kind of background. Can you, can you explain what this project was and what, like what you were asked to do, how this kind of came up? Yeah, Anthony, do you want to, do you want to have a stab at this? Why not? Why not say, um, I think it's important to note from the outset that this is funded by the Youth Sport Trust, which is a national youth sport organisation in the UK. So they were a key partner um, in the development of, of this of this project. And obviously they feature in the development of, of the report that was published. Um, but essentially, Tom and I got some money from the Youth Sport Trust to explore the nature, purpose and value of physical education and school sport in alternative provision settings. And that was quite significant at the time, and I suppose it still is now, because from a research perspective, certainly we know very diff we know very little about the alternative provision landscape across the UK. And I'm not just saying that in relation to physical education and school sport and how that's situated in that alternative provision landscape. I'm just talking in general, it's extremely under researched. So obviously, given our interest and expertise, we were particularly interested in understanding physical education in that landscape. So some of the objectives from memory, Tom, please to jump in and, and remind me related to the kind of key barriers and facilitators to engagement in physical education and school sport in alternative provision settings. We are interested in the kind of social political landscape of alternative provision of P in those settings, the funding and the resourcing of physical education in um, alternative provision settings, as well as kind of initial teacher education or teacher preparation and opportunities for continued professional, professional development of physical education teachers in that landscape. But, but it, I suppose as the research kind of developed, it did also encompass many other things like issues to do with with the um with teacher recruitment with the facilities and the spatial constraints that were placed on teachers when it came to trying to plan and deliver physical education as well as as well as many many other things um so so that i suppose encompassed the aims and objectives and then i don't know do you want to talk about the methodology tom do you want me to uh I'm happy to happy to give you an overview of the of the methodology. Um, I think the other thing just to note it's um, whilst we've given a shout out to the Youth Sport Trust, it's probably worth shouting out to Oliver Hooper as well, who um, was 
instrumental in helping us in terms of the data collection, the way that we approach that, um, and, and the construction of the report in the end as well. Um, so in short, yeah, I think one of the things to point out, you mentioned space earlier, Anthony, one of the things that you mentioned, Risto, was around these alternative settings being on the same site as mainstream schools. That's not always the case in England. So there might be some schools who have a smaller space dedicated to the alternative provision on that campus. But a lot of the time, these are independent places that can can be anywhere, for instance, and you can set one up anywhere. So if I give you an example, there was one I went to uh, down south in London, and it was about the size and a half of the car park that was next to it. And the car park probably held about 20 cars. So that gives you a bit of a idea of the size. And then there's other ones that we know that are built within uh, natural spaces purposely built uh, to make use of the environment so they do completely differ in that sense which make which makes it difficult for physical education outside if you don't have a large space and uh, i think some of your findings initially talked about how nearly half don't have a dedicated indoor space to teach any physical education so um can you can you just briefly overview like you had a couple different phases meaning you sent out a questionnaire then you went in and talked to the the, the teachers or the leaders, and then you went in and talked to the students. Um, is that kind of like the, what was the mentality behind um, putting it in that order? So I think the, the approach that we took was, A, it's very difficult to get a sense of where all the alternative provision schools are in England. So the first phase for us was the online survey. And to do that, we got a freedom of information request from UK government with the contact details of every single alternative provision provider in England. And then we bombarded them shamelessly with emails. Well, we didn't, the Youth Board trusted, um, with emails, incentives to take part. Um, and from that, we, I can't remember, it was close to 50 responses or, or whatever it was. We then used that as a means of trying to identify who we might go to for those second phase, which was the engaging with the lead practitioners. We've used the term lead practitioners because it, it's not always a PE teacher who is responsible for the PE in school sport. So that lead practitioner is perhaps more all encompassing. Um, within that, we were able to engage with 14 individuals from different alternative provision contexts as well as doing a focus group with around 15 practitioners um, at a Youth Sport Trust event. So that was the second phase in total. You know, we managed to engage with, with that amount of people. And then the third phase was, again, going back to some of the context that we'd spoken to the lead practitioners in and asking if we could go and, and speak to young people. And as part of that, we were able to go to four different case study sites and engage with 25 young people across those different sites. Um, adopted a range of um, creative arts-based methods to try and elicit their perspectives on, on physical education and sport, recognizing that they don't know us, um, they've never met us before, we've come down for sort of two hours, somebody's shown us around and then we're in a room with, with these young people. So we used write, draw, show and tell, get them to draw um, lessons, sports, what things they might, they might do, 
Uh, we use character creation, so they created two opposing characters on a piece of paper, and around the outside of those identified the positives and negatives that are associated with them in, in relation to physical education. We tried to do some active mapping, so in some we would walk around with students uh, and map out the school and identify on that map where they engage in activity because space was a, was a key driver. Um, others, they just drew a map. 2D map of the school and, and, and talked about it. And then we used graffiti boards to um, just highlight anything else that was pertinent to the discussions at the time. So I loved, and it, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna add to that, I suppose from a methodological perspective. And I think, I think it's important to note that there's a strong social justice underpinning to, to a lot of the work that we've done in that we were especially interested in trying to to the experiences and amplify the voices of the children and young people in these settings because their experiences and voices that have historically been neglected and silenced. And so that's something that we were really keen to do from a research and social justice perspective. Um, and it ties into that idea, I suppose, of an acknowledgement of, of their expertise and their ex expert knowledge when it comes to P, given their lived embodied experiences as recipients of attempts to try and try and facilitate that engagement. So, so for me, at least, and I think for us, I don't want to speak for Tom, but there was a street, an extremely strong focus on that. But at the same time, we were also interested in the teacher's perspective, because again, we were interested in, in their precarious position within alternative provision settings. And I think that was indicative. Um, and there's more to be done in this respect of, of the status of PE and therefore the state and identity of PE teachers in alternative provision settings, you know, because we, there's a wider conversation about the nature, purpose and value of alternative provision education and where PE is situated in that landscape. Yeah. And I love the, like the really interesting methods for how you, how you collected the data. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, obviously I've, I've seen papers that have done the mapping. I've seen pa papers that have done the drawing part, but not like four levels of it and four different types of ways. Um, so I'm curious, where did that come from? Like, where did that idea stem from? Was it, you had experience doing that? And the second part to the question is, I mean, this was a funded study. What was the funder? They're like, oh, sure. Like, go ahead and like, I I'm thinking about like a really, like a top down funder going, oh, sure, like you're going to have these kids draw some maps and draw some uh, drawings of themselves being physically active, and I'm going to give you some money for this. I think a lot of credit has to go to, to Vicky and, and Lucy at the Usport Trust who were completely open to, to the ideas that we were suggesting um, and were very happy to be led by us in, in that sense. Um, so in, in essence, the thing, and Ollie had a, a part to play in this as well is I've used the character creation with Ollie and Rachel Sanford before the right draw show and tell we've used before the active mapping was perhaps one we'd not used before, but one we thought would be really useful for this context, given what we knew had come out in the survey and, and speaking to teachers as part of that second phase. Um, so I think we went in with this idea of we'll have at least four options, not knowing the young people. And we'll be guided by them in terms of what they would like to do. And in an ideal world, we'll go through all four. Um, but in some contexts, 
that might not necessarily be the case. So um, the example I can give you is in the hospital school that I went into. So hospital school is basically where young people, chip in here, Anthony, because you've probably got a better definition than I have. Young people who uh, have a range of illnesses um, who can't stay in their home, they have to be hospitalized for their own safety, still need to engage in some education. So there is a wing of the hospital that is dedicated to education with some classrooms dotted around either side of it. When I went to speak to young people there, I was told you cannot take your lanyard in around your neck. You cannot take pen lids in. Um, you cannot take batteries into the room. So no dictaphone. Do not take your phone in with you. Uh, so all I could take in was paper and big marker pens, but without any lids on because they posed a health risk to the young people that were there. And that obviously presented a massive challenge in terms of capturing what they did. Um, and some of the things that we could do. So it was basically a, let's try and work through some of these things. Let's do some drawings, let's do some mapping, let's create some characters, do some graffiti boards, and then I'll leave the room, go back to my car and frantically talk into my phone, everything that you've just said. So because of the different contexts, we thought let's take a toolkit with us, something that the young people could use as they see fit in those different spaces. And it's, it's not perfect but it's a starting point for us. Well, it's massive in the time of research is and message, particularly when you're trying to operate in, in these different spaces. And I think there were two important points for me there, at least in relation to why there was that variety of methods for the young people themselves. It was the practicalities of it and trying to navigate those practicalities because we, we would have to be responsive in that we turn up to a setting without knowing what to expect in some instances and we'd have to adapt to the landscape in that particular setting but also that element of choice is really important because there, again there was a focus on trying to empower young people through the research process it wasn't participatory or emancipatory necessarily but there was a key focus on on trying to empower young people um through the methods that we used so going back to the pe teacher piece um you said a lot of, I mean, they're, they're the majority, but not a huge majority, uh, of these, uh, these schools had PE teachers, but when they did not have a PE teachers teaching PE, who was teaching it? And do you feel like that's a, that's problematic? You want me to jump on this one, Tom? You let, better, let, let, let me go for this one. You can correct whatever I say that's incorrect. Um, I, I think that... Well, let me stop you, let me stop you there. <laughs> that uh, lasted longer than I expected. Um, I think, I think this is, it was indicative for me at least, because as you know, Risto, a lot of my research is situated in, in special schools and so-called, I know you call, you turn them segregated settings within the US. Um, but it was indicative, there was a, it was analogous of, of what often happens in those settings in that Oftentimes, if there wasn't a P specialist and a P expert, sometimes that was outsourced. So there were processes involved where coaches from local companies would come in and deliver PE. Uh, sometimes it was someone internal to the school or the setting, sorry, who had an interest and, 
and and some experience delivering sports-based activities. Um, so I think it was quite, it was quite, I'm sure I'm, I'm missing an interest group, but there was quite a mismatch in, in that respect. And in some settings, um, multiple subject areas were delivered by the same person rather than the beard specialist teachers in across every subject area. So, so in relation to the role and responsibility of staff and and those responsible for P in particular, it was quite a patchwork of, of, of people who would contribute to PE. Um, and before I had Dr. Tom, that is obviously problematic. And, and we were doing a piece on on the initial teacher education and the continued professional development of PE teachers in these settings, because it is important that those PE teachers have the appropriate knowledge, skills, experience, and confidence to deliver whatever we claim high quality PE in those settings. And sometimes that knowledge is very contextualized. So, so even if, again, in the UK, PE teachers generally are trained for mainstream or what you might call over your side integrated settings. That's where, that's how they're trained. They're the placements that they go into and so on. And that training isn't always transferable to other education settings. And that's where I think the inherent problem lies. And one of the things yeah. that you recommended was that uh, initial teacher education has a placement in something similar to this and and i and i love that and and you talked about initial teacher education in general so i'm wondering tom because you you've been on this podcast before you've published on trauma-informed pedagogies and that was something that you um you and rachel sanford and i think oliver was on there like you talked about that a lot so do you feel like this kind of overlaps i mean not not everybody who was in one of these types of alternative provision schools has gone through trauma, but I'm assuming that there are a lot of people who have experienced um, those kind of traumatic experiences in their childhood. Yeah, absolutely. I think this picks up a bit on on Anthony's point in the um, he used the word patchwork, which I don't, I love that. I mean, what a what a great phrase. Um, in terms of that patchwork of who's delivering it, it's. For me, it's probably less problematic if, again, not ideal, if it is a teacher with alternative, a teacher within the alternative provision setting who's really passionate about football, for instance, and they lead the the PE and sport. They've at least got an understanding of the needs of young people, of you know the the, the previous experiences that, that they've had, the the trauma that they may have gone through, et cetera. And there are a lot of young people in that context. And a lot of the contexts that we're talking about do work in trauma-informed ways. Um, it doesn't underpin it. Their, their general approach is quite a lot. I think for me, it's really problematic when people are saying, well, we get a sports coach in or we get an external provider in uh, to deliver it because A, they, they don't know what space they're walking into. They do not know the young people and they will never have had uh, any experience realistically of working in an alternative provision setting um, and so one of the points that I know Anthony is advocating for a lot is that we should be encouraging students who are going through that teacher training program to experience what it's like to work in those different settings um, 
and it's incredibly rewarding yeah working in those different settings and yet there's a stigma around it that just means nobody touches them yeah absolutely and, and listen, just if I may quickly, Risto, because I talk about initial teacher education all the time. And I think there is a piece for us to do on, on if we are to better prepare prospective teachers for this setting, what does that preparation involve? But I think we, that's always constrained by the context and the expectations that are placed on teacher education. So I'm sure it's the same in the US, but the teacher education curriculum is extremely congested there's so many different expectations that are placed on prospective teachers in a very very short period of time and over here at least it's, i would argue it's very politicized and very government driven and the government have their own expectations about what teachers should do know and learn as part of that process so the reason i say that is i, I talk about this all the time and i appreciate it's very idealistic um, because often what happens when curriculum time anywhere gets squeezed, it, you know, anything to do with SCND or alternative provision or anything like that just gets squeezed out of the curriculum. It's not high enough. It's not of a high enough priority. And that's the landscape, the teacher education and political landscape that we're operating in. Yeah. And, and it, that, that happens in the U S as well. And, and I know when I was teaching at Cal State Fullerton in a teacher preparation program, like we didn't systematically try to put students in low-income schools or in schools that were, you know, uh, different than where our ideal teacher was, where our, our ideal setting was. We know the teacher. We know the type of school. It's going to be a safe place for this student to learn how to teach. And, and I know for a fact that I failed some students in preparing them for the the school that they went into because, you know, we did a research study with one of our graduates who took, um, who took a job in Los Angeles Unified School District in an urban school in a setting that he had never walked into and he struggled. And, you know, he called me in September when school started, he's like, uh, the, the things that you've taught me are not working. I'm like, okay, let's have a conversation and maybe you'd be willing to share this officially and do like a research study on this. And that, you know, Michael Hemphill and I did this, did this study with him and the, because he was always, okay. He was in a diverse school, but a high income school where he did his student teaching. So, you know, when he went into a majority black, Hispanic, low income school, he, he wasn't relating to the students and, you know, he had to really learn to work for that. And it took time and I realized that, okay, well, if he had a title one, which is like the low income school setting placement early on in his PE teaching, like initial teacher education, he'd be way differently prepared for that than, than what, what we did. And so since then we had changed that their elementary methods field work was in a low income school. And when those students went in there, as third year, fourth year teachers, their eyes are wide open. They're like, oh, this is not the PE or this is not the school that I went to. I'm like, yeah, there are a bunch of different schools in this country. And, you know, just learning one type of school to teach in doesn't necessarily always transfer. Yeah, just to note, Risto, the, the exact same thing happens in the UK. 
um, from a school's perspective, but also a class perspective. You know, there's good evidence to suggest that those who educate prospective teachers often keep them away from the so-called more challenging classes and students. Um, and, you know, and, that, and that's, that's couched as, or that's justified as a way of trying to protect these, you know, very inexperienced teachers, you know, because there's a lot of pressure on on the teacher education process of very inexperienced teachers because the consequences of failing your teacher training, which can and does happen over here, are catastrophic. You know, so that's what they're trying to avoid. So I understand the sensitivities of of trying to navigate um, what you do expose trainee teachers to and, and what you might not expose them to. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Yeah. So it was interesting that you had, you had like a summary of vignettes of a positive and a negative school experience. And when I was reading, and this is like pinpointing one set from your entire proposal, but when I looked at the positive vignettes, it seemed like PE was better for these students than it was in mainstream because of a lot of things like they had options to choose what they wanted to do. They had different options of doing things. They had less competition or at least the opportunity to do less competition versus more competition. They had the social aspect, all of these things that if you read research papers about, you know, Amir and Wright or someone saying like, hey, like you should have choices and you should have activist approaches and, you know, you should have, um, you know, autonomy to choose. Competition is not great for everybody. You should have these other options and meaningful PE and like that's what's happening in in the positive vignettes but that's what's happening in some of these schools and do you have an explanation of why you think those specific positive experiences happen like how are was there less structure for PE are there less like rules or oversight so the PE teacher can be flexible yeah I think there's there's a couple of things that fit into it first and foremost is a lot of the young people at least from what the practitioners told us, where a lot of the young people had had such negative experiences of PE in mainstream school that the challenge for them was to hook them back into it and to hook them back into it, they had to do something different. Mm -hmm. So if it was the, the traditional didactic sport of techniques approaches that you, you know, everyone's still critiquing, then that wasn't going to work for them. So the first thing was they've got to do something different to re-engage them. The second thing was the numbers are a lot smaller. So instead of having a class of 25, 30 kids, you might be delivering a PE lesson to eight or nine or five. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's that, yeah, they've got a little bit more flexibility and freedom with what they can do. The other thing is the spatial constraints that a lot of these teachers, staff are working within means that they've got to think outside the box for what their PE could look like. And that starts with actually having conversations with young people and saying, well, what would you like to do in this space? So a lot of teachers were making up activities that weren't competition orientated, that were based on the needs and interests of, of the young people because it hooked them back in. They could do it in the space that they've got. Um, and and it, was, it was a stepping stone for them to actually re-engage with PE. Anthony? Just to add really quickly, I think at the, 
it's a really important point. And that one of the things that we're really conscious of is because there's a lot of stigma associated with this setting and the children who occupy these settings in particular. And we didn't want to adopt a deficit approach. And they're all really positive, strength-based things that came out of the research that we did. And I think that was a key area of strength for me in that these children, for lots of different reasons, were exposed to a, a much wider repertoire of activities and a much wider repertoire of learning domains than perhaps children in mainstream schools would typically experience. Um, and, and Tom's mentioned some of the key factors that, that enabled that to happen. You know, the, in, in these settings, the curriculum, we have a national curriculum, it can be disapplied. Teachers have got a lot more curriculum autonomy in that respect. And, and that was one of the many things that, that shaped why the landscape looked a little bit different than perhaps it does in some mainstream schools. Yeah, I think, sorry, I think the other, um, the other thing to note is it, it probably links into the purpose for, of PE in those contexts as well. So if it was being driven by, um, you know, a school saying, right, well, the, the purpose for us is to develop their soft skills, their interpersonal skills to ensure that they're better supported to transition back into mainstream school. And that was reflected in the type of activities that they did. Um, so it was probably driven a little bit as well by the way in which teachers, staff saw and valued PE. Yeah. And one of the recommendations, yeah. sorry, so last thing I promise, because I think that's an important point when you think about this setting and what might make it very different from others in that. In an ideal world, staff in that setting make their services redundant because the the goal should be, in theory, to transition these children back into mainstream context. That doesn't always happen. And in fact, it, ha it, it happens infrequently. But that ties into the purpose of that education setting and therefore physical education within that setting. And one of your recommendations. Sorry, I'll shut up now. One of your recommendations, I think it's the eighth recommendation, you said provide offsite opportunities for young people to engage in physical activity and sport to help them re-engage with the outside world, which which I think is a really good idea. If, if the goal is re-entry, which again, it doesn't always happen, but if the goal is re-entry, then you're not necessarily going to be able to do that in isolation only. And then all of a sudden, like, just plop them back in and like, Hey, hope this is, hope you're good. Right. But having these offsite, obviously like it, it might make sense because you have half of the places don't have a dedicated indoor space. So you need to find the indoor space. So you go into the community, find the indoor space. Now you're offsite. Now you're re-engaging with what you're hope to hope to push through. And so I thought there were, there were really good recommendations you know, reframing competition to focus more on internal motivation and providing opportunities for a sense of achievement. Um, you had facilitating the inclusion of pupil voice and curriculum decision making process. So there are a lot of really good, I don't want to say common sense because they're not common sense because they're not being done. Right. But they're like the, the summary that you had, they were really simple things to fix. It wasn't re like, it wasn't tearing down the system and building it up from the ground up. They're like little tiny things that research says that you should be doing already, which obviously 
in the US, UK, like it's not necessarily happening. We're writing about it, but it's not necessarily happening. So I'm just, I'm curious of, you know, do you think that these recommendations are, are feasible? I think some of them are feasible and some of them are already being done. Um, so, you know, some of the recommendations that you mentioned around facilitating youth voice, the reframing of competition, they've been drawn out of the good examples that we've been given. So they are being done. I think the challenge is that these schools work in isolation. And so what's happening is, you know, you would hand, you would hold up as, you know, gold standard, good practice in one environment two miles down the road, nobody knows about it because they don't communicate. Um, so that they are, there's a lot of very good practice going on. It's just that there's no network to bring individuals together. So I think some of them are already happening, can be done. I think the Youth Sport Trust is doing a great job of trying to bring a network together of alternative provision practitioners. But then I also think that some of the, some of the recommendations that we've suggested are more challenging in terms of um, like build funding. Yeah, build like, a funding. But like, yes, yeah, that that costs money, right? That, that, yeah. that, that's a real problem. That one, I think, because that's a UK policy decision. So there's no legal requirement for an alternative provision that's set up to have outdoor space and or space or physical education. And I think that needs to be a key policy driver. And policy is much more harder to move than than practices in school. So so that's the only one I'm really skeptical of. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess a couple really quick questions to follow up. So this is a report, right? So you sent me a PDF of that report. Will this be a journal article? Are you planning on publishing this? Is it, what's the process there? Or are you just going to keep it as this report? No, so uh, Anthony, I and Ollie, um, I think have a list of 10 outputs um, based on, on a lot of the data. Mm -hmm. um, when, when we get round to those, it's a different question. Um, but there's, there will certainly be, um, I'm going to, let's go, let's go realistic. There'll certainly be at least four um, academic outputs from this piece of research. Definitely. Awesome. Um, and I think the challenge for us is identifying where that where those outputs might go, because it it's a little bit more niche. Yes. Um, and certainly, if you look across the academic journal landscape, there the pockets of alternative provision research in general are appearing a little bit here, a little bit there. Mm -hmm. um, so finding finding the right home for them is probably the the challenging point for us. But there'll definitely be four. Four, Anthony, you okay, you okay with that? I'm confident with a four, definitely. Definitely four. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Get right, it. you, you talk about the journals. So we, we have a, a paper in review, a research review of uh, 20 years of after-school programming in before or after-school programming that has some physical activity component and that are not just sports programs. So something that's educational and physical activity. I think we had something like 320 journal articles that went into the review and the most published from one journal was like four or 5%. So they were published in across like 150 journals or something. And so it just like, there is no journal for after school physical activity research. 
And then you try to get that to, let's say, like journal teaching and physical education. Some reviewers are like, this isn't physical education. You're in after school settings. And then you go to physical education and sport pedagogy, which is typically where I submit the after school stuff because it is encompassing in sport pedagogy. So they have a wider, um, wider field, but that's limited, you know? And then do you go to, you know, do you go to physical activity research journal and they're like, well, you don't have any physical activity data. So get out of here. So I, I can understand that. And it's, and it's interesting because, you know, is it then leisure studies? But then one of the things, sorry, oh, sorry. No, I, I was, I was done with my thing. I was just rambling. I was hoping somebody would cut me off. <laughs> well, I was going to say one of the things I think that that's quite exciting and interesting about when Tom and I work together and we've worked together in different guises for a long time, but never really produced research together. So that this is quite new for us as a partnership, but Tom's in a school of sport. I'm in a school of education. So our field of vision are a little bit different and I find that quite interesting too. So all the journals that you mentioned are published in some of them, but I've got educate broader education journals on, on my peer view, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm interested in exploring those spaces and how they might receive alternative provision and PA alternative provision research. Yeah, I think, so the, so I moved or the entire physical education department moved two, three years ago from a school of kinesiology to the school of education. And good move, good move. I, I agree. <laughs> I think that's the wave of the future right there. Um, but, it, but it's interesting because like we've sent some of the reach after school research stuff to education journals and they look at physical education or after school physical activity as not education. So we try teacher education journals, we try high-end education journals, and PE is marginalized in those fields. And, you know, even like we've, we've talked about American Educational Research Association, like we've talked to the very, very top of the ladder there to try to figure out how even like we are a special interest group for physical education in ARA, but there's not a lot of leadership opportunities for physical educators. When I try to go outside of our SIG to go into like after school or literacy, they're like, um, I don't understand the physical education component rejected. So it's been, and I've talked to Michael Hemphill about this too, trying to go into like the after school SIG at AERA. And it's a risk because you do a 2000 word abstract. It's your one shot to go in there. And if it gets rejected, it's going to be a paper by the time it would go into any other conference. So it's risky to go out and to get marginalized. And a lot of that work still gets marginalized in the education journals. Um, so a dilemma. I get, I get a risk though, but I'm a space invader. I'm really interested in invading those spaces and inserting the normalized and the publication of PE in those education spaces. That's my duty risk though. All I all I could see is as soon as you said space invaders was the little little rocket thing going and playing and like shooting the little the little asteroids that was coming down. Um, uh, a final question: freedom of information request. To me, okay, living in America, you're like FOIA request. That is a fascinating way to make somebody else get you the list of 
all of the things. <laughs> so was that was that something you came up with, or was that the Youth Sports Trust that was like, hey, we know that we can file this Freedom of Information request, and they have to get that list to us, and it's it's going to be way more accurate than you scrolling through the internet for a hundred hours and you'll always miss one right or two or five or whatever yeah it was it was our idea um freedom of information requests are, are quite common in in england in terms of anything that's state funded and, and run um how i'll be honest how up-to-date and accurate some of the information that we got in that um i'm not sure uh, because I had a lot of emails bounce back mm -hmm. several times when, you know, we'd ever done follow-ups to say, oh, this person is no longer here, send it to someone else. And that might be the the, the one person that is in charge of that alternative provision setting. Right. So, yeah, they're, um, they're a great way of getting the contact details for key, key sites that you, that you want to access. And you can get other information from free different information requests. Uh, as well, it's just we'll stick with that for now because yeah. it's easier. Because that was interesting. Because I'm, I'm thinking, I would love to understand what's happening in my state with elementary or secondary PE teachers. But the way that the websites are now set up, people's emails aren't on there, right? So you can click this button, fill out the form, and then they get this message that says, "Hey, this guy named Risto wants you to email him back." to get that email then to send them the questionnaire or survey or interview request versus I'm wondering now, as of this morning when I read this, was um, can I do a freedom of information like request for the state of Virginia to give me all of the email addresses or all the names of PE teachers in the state? Like, I guess they would have to act. I'd probably need a lawyer in America though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, in, it's fairly easy in England, so the, there's just a website that you go on, mm. um, the government website, and you can just insert what it is that, you, that you're after, and then somebody gets back with you, asks for clarification, and four weeks later you get it. Wow. I, I wouldn't want to advise you, Risto, in case you get sued, and, and then I'm implicated in, in that sense. Do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, do it. Uh, well, thank you both for for coming on and sharing about this. I think this has been really interesting, and I look forward to uh, getting those uh, 10 outputs published. Thanks. Thanks, Risto.